Good morning. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 5. And I will read the whole chapter. If you are just visiting us here at South Paris Baptist Church for the first time this morning, the reason that we are in Genesis chapter 5 is because I'm preaching through the entire book of Genesis, all 50 chapters, and chapter 5 is next in line. So here we go. Genesis chapter 5, and I'll read the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. God's holy word says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you have spoken clearly in inspired writing that is designed to build us up in the things of God and to make us fitting participants in your kingdom. Father, we pray that this word would transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of chapter 5 gets right to the subject matter. This is the book of the generations of Adam, which means that what follows is going to reveal some very important information about things that happened after Adam was created. The rest of verses 1 and 2 briefly recap the creation of man and woman, and then verses 3 to 32 tell us about the branch of Adam's family tree that runs from his son Seth all the way down to the 10th generation, Noah, and the 11th generation, Noah's three sons. So let's begin by taking note of the brief recap of the creation of mankind in verses 1 and 2. In case you weren't paying attention back in Genesis chapter 1, mankind did not descend from the apes. Mankind is not an animal upgrade. Instead, God created mankind unique and special in his own image, in his own likeness. Mankind stands apart from the rest of creation in that we resemble God and we're created to reflect his character and to represent his authority. And one of the, one of the most distinct ways in which we reflect the character of God is in relationships, particularly in the relationship of male and female, the complementary sexes that are joined together in marriage and the two become one flesh. And we're reminded of that here in verse 2. And it's very interesting that we're told in verse 2 that God named them, that is male and female, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, come together, one flesh. He named them man. And, and that, that tells us two very important things, nothing new if, if we've been following along in Genesis 1 and 2, but first it indicates the unity. If, if, you give, if you give a pair, male and female, husband and wife, one name, then that reveals their unity, their fundament, fundamental unity. But it also reveals, once again, the headship of the man, because the name that he gives them, Adam, 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 man, the name that he gives them is also the name that is used to refer to the male in the relationship. So again, we see the unity of the couple and the headship of the man. Interestingly enough, the cultural tradition of the wife taking her husband's name is profoundly right and echoes the truth of Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. If someone were to introduce me and my wife, Charlotta, as Mr. and Mrs. Wilbur, or even more pointedly, and sometimes this is done, Mr. and Mrs. Brian Wilbur, that, that's, that's profoundly right. And that is echoing God's design, what God himself did in chapter 5, 
verse 2. So, that first couple enjoyed God's blessing as they got their start in the world. As the middle of verse 2 reminds us, God blessed them. How wonderful to be reminded of God's original blessing upon mankind, and yet how sobering to realize that that original blessing was forfeited. And now as we walk through Genesis chapter 5, we come across that repeated refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died because the disobedience of Adam and Eve opened the door to the long march of death. So, having been reminded of God's special work in creating mankind, we are now ready to consider the 11 generation genealogy that starts in verse 3. Now, as we walk through this, it is not necessary to repeat every detail. The, 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 the basic genealogical formula is very clear. When the man so named had lived a certain number of years, he fathered a son and after he fathered that son, he lived a certain number of years and had other sons and daughters, and thus he lived a certain number of years, and then he died. That, that's, that's, the, that's the formula used to convey the, the information in the genealogy. So when we come to an information-heavy passage that follows a carefully worded formula, what we should be on the lookout for is the little things that stand out. Look for the deviations from the standard formula. Look for the surprises. Look for the unusual phrases that only occur once or twice. Look for the extra detail. Or look for incomplete information, which, of course, is obvious. At the end of the passage, we, we, we don't get a typical complete three-verse summary of Noah's life and death at the end of the chapter. Instead, it just abruptly ends. Why? Well, if you know the book of Genesis, you know why, and that is because a three-verse three verse summary won't cut it for Noah. Noah and his sons need the better part of four chapters to describe what God did in, through, and around their lives, and that's what we see in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. But setting aside the incompleteness of Noah's biographical information in verse 32, there are three big things that stand out in verses 3 to 31. And what I want to do is call your attention to these three big things, and then afterward I'll tell you a fourth thing about this passage that is actually the most important of all. So, the first thing that stands out is in verse 3, that... Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. In verses 3 to 32, verse 3 is the only verse with the phrase, in his own likeness after his image. This phrase is intended to be compared with verse 1, which told us that God created mankind in the likeness of of God, which, take, which reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God made Adam, the first man, in God's image, after God's likeness. Now when it comes to the procreation through the male-female sexual union, we are told that 
Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So Adam was made in God's image after God's likeness, and Seth was fathered in Adam's likeness after Adam's image. What's the significance of the phrase? Well, it likely communicates two things. On one level, it means that the image and likeness in which Adam was made is indeed passed down to his descendants through procreation. James 3.9 indicates that all people, not just Adam, are made in the likeness of God. So if Adam is made in God's likeness, and then Seth is made in Adam's likeness, then since Adam's likeness is indeed after God's likeness, then Seth now also shares the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God are passed down to all human beings through procreation. But that's not all. To say that Seth was fathered in Adam's likeness and after Adam's image forces us to reckon with the fact that Adam had fallen into sin. As a result of his disobedience, Adam had become a corrupted or marred image bearer of God. Adam is still an image bearer of God, but after he had sinned, Adam's image bearing is no longer pristine. Therefore, Seth was fathered in Adam's blemished likeness. After Adam's flawed image. And what happened when Adam fathered Seth is what happens when any sinful man fathers a son or daughter in this world. The father passes on his corrupted and flawed uh, image to his sons and daughters. As it is with the father, so it is with his children. When Seth, as a youngster, began to express his sinful nature in bad conduct, it would have been spot on to tell him, oh, Seth, dear boy, you are acting just like your father, Adam. Now, there's one other detail that stands out in verse 3, but it also stands out in verse 29, so I'm going to hold that thought until we get to verse 29. Okay. Now, after verse 3, the genealogical information continues without surprise until you get to Enoch. Enoch stands out big time, and we need to slow down and drink it in. And all that we need to know about Enoch's character is found in verse 22 and is then repeated in verse 24. What does it say? Enoch walked with God. This phrase, walked with God, doesn't mean that from time to time Enoch met up with God in order that the two might go on an evening walk together. The, the concept here is much bigger than occasional and isolated walks. Walk is a metaphor for the character and movement and trajectory of your entire life. The Bible says that King Ahaziah of Judah walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. By contrast, King Josiah of Judah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk refers to the consistent direction of your everyday life. You are either going God's way or you're not. You're either following the Lord or you're not. 
You're either keeping in step with the Holy Spirit or you're not. You're either walking with God or you're not. Enoch went God's way. Enoch consistently went in God's direction. He kept close company with the Almighty and lived for an audience of one. He didn't care about walking with the crowd or walking with the big wigs or walking with the trendsetters. Likewise, he didn't care about walking after the world or walking after his own fleshly desires. Enoch was like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Enoch was not ensnared by the deceitful message of worldly people. Instead, Enoch had a message for worldly people. And how do we know that? We know that Enoch had a message for this sinful world because the New Testament letter of Jude tells us that Enoch prophesied that the Lord's judgment would come upon this wicked world. The book of Jude, verses 14 and 15 say, it was also about these, referring to ungodly persons, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. In the context of the letter of Jude, Enoch's prophecy of coming judgment is not pointing mainly to the judgment of the flood, but is actually pointing forward to the final judgment that will come upon all ungodly persons. Enoch knew that godliness is the main thing. God will generously reward those who walk with him, and he will execute judgment on those who walk contrary to him. And as Enoch went God's way, so he warned the disobedient of the judgment to come. The sweeping flood judgment of Genesis chapter 7, which we're about to study, that happened 669 years after Enoch was taken to glory. The flood judgment was a preview of the final judgment that will take place at the end of the age. And we, we ought to echo Enoch's word and warning to all of us. If you refuse to take refuge in the Lord, if you refuse to turn from sin and trust in the Lord and learn to go His way, then you will be swept away into everlasting punishment. I don't want you to be swept away into everlasting punishment. So flee from the wrath to come. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Leave behind this bankrupt world and Instead, run to Jesus and discover the living water that He gives to all who call upon His name. And one other thing, don't let Satan convince you that you cannot be like Enoch or that you could never be like Enoch. One of the main lessons of Genesis 5 verses 21 to 24 is this, in this sin-laden, death-shadowed world. You don't have to go the way that Cain and Lamech went in Genesis chapter 4. Instead, you can go the way of Enoch, 
By the grace of God and through faith in His name, you can learn to walk with God. You can keep both of your feet on the path of righteousness. You can be done with foolish and worthless pursuits and live a worthwhile life that meets with God's approval. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. By faith, Abel walked with God. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah and King Josiah walked with God. Why not you? Why not today? Paul's prayer for ordinary Christians in Colossians chapter 1, his prayer for ordinary Christians is, quote, that we may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Enoch lived as Paul prayed. And God took pleasure in Enoch and in Enoch's faithful walk. And one day, God gave Enoch a rare and special gift. He exempted him from death and took him straight away to glory. Which, of course, is the other thing that jumps out about Enoch. Right? Adam died. Seth died. Enosh died. Kenan died. Mahalalel died. Jared died. And then we get to verses 21 to 24. And Enoch did not die. Verse 24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And the book of Hebrews chapter 11 holds forth Enoch as an example of a man who walked by faith. It says in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch's immediate translation into the presence of God is a testimony to the fact that if we begin to enjoy fellowship with God, while in this present life, so shall we enjoy fellowship with God in the life to come. Those who walk with God now have every reason to expect that they will walk with God forever. Except for Enoch and for Elijah and for the faithful believers who are alive on the earth when the Lord returns, except for the, those, all of God's faithful people must pass through the door of physical death. Death. Abel walked with God and died. Noah walked with God and died. Abraham walked with God and died, as did many others. And they are not inferior to Enoch. So the fact that God took Enoch is a testimony to us that physical death is not the end of the story. God's appointed end for His faithful people is not the grave. There is something beautiful and glorious beyond the confines of this present world. And what is that beautiful and glorious thing beyond the confines of this present world? It's this, that there shall be for God's faithful people unhindered and joyful fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. If you aren't walking with God now, 
while you're living your everyday life in western Maine, don't expect to walk with God in the eternal city when it's unveiled from heaven. But if you share Enoch's faith, if you share Enoch's desire to draw near to God, if like Enoch, you prefer what God offers you over anything that the world offers you, then you will also have an unfading inheritance in the age to come. Years ago, I read the words of a Christian woman. These are the words. A lesson came this morning over a ripe peach, a characteristic of ripeness that I had never noticed before, the ease with which it takes stripping. Up to the last day before real ripeness sets in, it clings to the outward, and the outward has to be torn from it. The, the parting with all of it comes now without an effort. The eternal life at its heart is all that matters. Don't be like an immature, unripe fruit that is holding tenaciously to the tree of this present life. Instead, be so ripe in your love for the Lord that the most natural thing in the world would be for Him to come and pluck you out of this world and bring you home. Enoch was certainly not disappointed when God took him because Enoch's treasure was not on this earth. Enoch's treasure was in the heavenly places and when God took him, he was home. So, the first thing that stood out in the genealogy is the comment that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. The second thing that stands out is the life of Enoch. Now to the third thing. The third thing that stands out is the significance of Lamech naming his son Noah. The names of 13 men are identified in chapter 5, but only two of the 13 names are highlighted for their special significance. I am indebted to Jonathan Safarti's commentary for making me aware of a simple but important detail that I had not noticed in verses 3 to 32. In every case except for two, we are simply told that the, fa that the father fathered a son, like verse 6, Seth fathered Enosh, Enosh fathered Kenan, verse 9, and so on. But in two cases, and only two cases, in chapter 5, we are specifically told that, the fa that a father named his son. The first case is back in verse 3, which I told you I was going to hold until right now. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness and named him Seth. Although the significance of, the significance of Seth's name is not given to us in chapter 5, it is given to us at the end of chapter 4. The second case is here in verses 28 and 29. Lamech fathered a son and called his name Noah. By including this detail, only in the case of Seth and Noah, the text is highlighting the significance of their names. The significance of Noah's name tells us something important about Noah's father. For Noah's father was the one who named Noah for a particular reason in view. Verses 28 and 29 say, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had, has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
If you map out the chronology of chapter 5, you will see that Lamech was born in the 874th year of the world. Adam was still alive when Lamech was born, for Adam lived until the ripe age of 930. So Adam died in, in the 930th year of the world. Enoch was taken up to glory in the year 987. Seth died in the year 1042. And Noah was, was born in the year 1056. Noah was born just a little over a thousand years after the creation of the world. Now notice that when Noah was born, Lamech was very much aware that he lived in a heavy-hearted world, just like ours. Lamech knew that the Lord had cursed the ground about a thousand years earlier after Adam's disobedience. This curse upon the ground is recounted in Genesis 3.17, And Lamech knew that human work in this ground-cursed world was exhausting. The painful toil of our hands was a tangible reality to Lamech, and he wanted relief from it. So Lamech named his son Noah. Noah means rest. And Noah sounds similar to the phrase, bring us relief. Thus, you can understand the connection between Noah's name and Lamech's hope. This one, the one whose name means rest and whose name sounds like bring us relief, this one shall bring us relief from our work. This one shall bring us relief from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech's hope was that Noah would reverse the curse and bring relief and rest to a weary world. Now, there's something very remarkable about Lamech's expression of hope, and it actually serves to highlight what is most important about chapter 5. What is striking about Lamech's hope is that he was expecting curse-reversing relief to come from a man, namely his son. Why? Isn't it true that Lamech should have been looking for curse-reversing relief from the Lord and not from a man? And the answer, as it turns out, is that in this case we have stumbled upon a false dilemma. Of course Lamech and everyone else should be looking for curse-removing grace from the Lord. But what we need to understand is that the Lord had promised to send a man to do it in Genesis 3.15. Starting in Genesis 3.15, God's people were looking forward to a special descendant of the woman to crush the serpent, reverse the curse, and restore the blessing. For God had said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This promise of good news would have been passed down from Adam and Eve to their descendants, and this knowledge of salvation would have been retained, would have been retained by people like Abel and Seth and Enosh and Enoch, people who were calling on the name of the Lord. In due course, Lamech was looking for a special son of promise, the Messiah. And somehow, Lamech had a sense that Noah was to be special. And therefore, Lamech anticipated that Noah was the promised deliverer. Now, he wasn't, of course. 
Although Noah was a gracious man who played a key role in the preservation of the human race, nevertheless, Noah was not the was not the Messiah. Noah did not bring lasting relief to a weary world. But nevertheless, Lamech was right to be looking for a human Messiah. And this brings me to the most important thing about this passage. This passage is highlighting God's resolve to fulfill his promise to send a deliverer through one particular branch of Adam's family tree. God watches over his word to perform it, to keep it, to bring it to fulfillment. That's what God does because he is trustworthy and he is faithful to do what he promises to do. In Genesis 3.15, which I read a moment ago, he promised that a singular seed of the woman would come forth in order to deal a death blow to the devil. And now what we see at the end of chapter 4 and throughout chapter 5 is that God is unfolding his promise before our very eyes. Are you paying attention? God is watching over his word to perform it. He's working his plan. What did God do at the end of chapter 4? God appointed for the woman another offspring instead of Abel. Verse 25. God sees to it that the corruption of Cain and the death of Abel doesn't mean the death of His promise. Instead, God sees to it that a holy seed is perpetuated through the woman until Messiah comes. Therefore, God appointed Seth to carry forth the promise to the next generation. Now, I want you to notice how the book of Genesis highlights this portion of Adam's family tree in chapter 5. When you compare the genealogy of chapter 5 with the genealogy of chapter 4, one of the obvious differences is that the genealogy of chapter 4, Cain's genealogy, contains no numerical time markers. This pattern will repeat The genealogies of Noah's sons Ham and Japheth in Genesis 10, no numerical time markers. The genealogy of Ishmael in Genesis 25 contains no time markers except for the age of Ishmael. The genealogy of Isaac's son Esau in Genesis 36, no numerical time markers. Furthermore, these non-messianic genealogies eventually just end as far as the Bible is concerned. The Bible does not keep documenting the unfolding of non-messianic genealogies. Another way to make this same point is simply to observe that by the time we get into Genesis chapter 5 and by the end of chapter 5, Adam's family tree was quite complex. I mean, Adam's family tree through Cain down to the eighth generation is told, told to us in Genesis 4. Adam's family tree through Seth is found in Genesis 5. But Adam had other sons and daughters, and Seth had other sons and daughters, and they all had other sons and daughters. And so by the time we get to the end of chapter 5, Adam's family tree is massive and complex, but God's special attention is on this one branch of Adam's family tree. Because it's through this one branch that Adam's, it's through this one branch that God is going to provide the Savior of the world. In fact, every branch of Adam's family tree is going to be cut off at the flood, except for Noah and his three sons 
and their wives. And when we get to the post-flood world of Genesis chapter 11, we will see another genealogy with numerical time markers that runs from Noah's son Shem to Abraham. And in due course, the prophet Isaiah will come along and tell us that someone greater than Noah is going to arise from Adam's family tree through Seth and Enosh, through Noah and Shem, through Abraham and Isaac, through Jacob and Judah, through Boaz and Obed, and through Obed's son, Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And when the fruit of Jesse comes, he will pick up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, And he will announce to the world that he is the one who has come to give us rest. And he will say, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61, taken upon the lips of Jesus in Luke I think Luke chapter 4. The the eightfold refrain of Genesis chapter 5 stings. And he died, 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 and he died. Lamech lived in a world of death. He was 56 when Adam died, 168 when Seth died, 266 when Enosh died, 361. When Kenan died, Lamech was 416 when Mahalalel died, and 548 when his grandfather Jared died. What Lamech needed and what you and I need isn't just a deliverer who can bring us relief from the painful toil of our hands. We need a deliverer who can bring us relief from the long march of death through this sinful world. We need a a deliverer who can save us from the righteous judgment that Enoch foretold and that the flood previewed. We need a deliverer who can crush the serpent and remake sinners in accordance with the image and likeness of God. And what we have needed ever since our first parents fell into sin, God has been absolutely determined to give. Which is why right here in Genesis chapter 5, he is paying careful and special attention to the lineage of the holy seed that would one day yield the true king who suffered death for us so that we might walk with him in the land of the living. And when the seed of the woman finally came forth in the fullness of time, a grand announcement sounded forth over this sin-laden, death-shadowed world. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And any person from any branch of Adam's messed up family tree who calls on the name of this Messiah will be saved. Amen.